Hello, and welcome to the Your Book is Your Hook podcast show, where you get the opportunity to go behind the books and discover the process from thought to sales of how other authors, screenwriters, scriptwriters, and playwrights have succeeded in getting published and produced, and how they use their films, TV episodic series, theatricals, and books as their hook. You'll also find out about industry professionals and resources to help you as a writer and author with your book, film, theatrical project, or TV episodic series, so you can write, market, publish, and produce it, and make money with it too. Jennifer has a great show in store for you today. We'll be right back with Jennifer right after this short message. Today, we have the pleasure of talking with Nina Sadowski about her illustrious writing career as an author this time. And this is so fun for me because really, Nina, this is something that really came into your world. I like to call it blew into your world. (laughs) Really, just uh, about four years ago when your debut thriller, Just Fall, was published by Ballantine. And your second novel, The Burial Society, was published in 2018. And that became the first book of a series, which The Empty Nest came out earlier this year in January. And your books have been translated into German, Spanish, Italian, French, Japanese, Turkish, and Serbian. And the published novels are in development for television. You've been having such a great time being a writer as an author and published author. And one of the best things for me is I get to welcome you back to the show. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you for having me double. (laughs) I'm so glad. I'm so glad because, you know, one of the things that is illustrious as a career is to be able to write in all these different ways, you know. So how did you come to actually writing novels and becoming an author? Why did you want to do it? And how did you actually get published with Ballantine, that first novel? So I always considered myself a writer. And I think that writing and publishing a book was always on a, my sort of secret dream list, right, in the back of my head. And But there were sort of a couple of things, two things that specifically sparked the writing of my first book. One was that I was feeling the ageism and the sexism in the film business. And I had written a film about teenagers that got me 22 meetings, but didn't sell. But when I walked in the room, I could see people's faces fall because I wasn't a teenager, right? Or close to a teenager. And um, so I was really frustrated and I had a bad pitching season. I was feeling really sort of beaten up by the business. And I thought, well, I don't love writing anymore. And I have to, I have to get that back because I love writing. Um, simultaneously, I had gotten remarried, uh, happy, which I thought was going to be a happy thing, worked out, but midlife marriage. And we had four teenagers and we blended this family with all optimism and all hell broke loose. And I, you know, we, my husband and I really, we had one, one of the four kids was so angry and, and so awful that it was really putting a terrible strain on me and my husband. And he and I went away for the weekend and we were supposed to have, you know, a nice hotel on the beach and we were going to, you know, sip cocktails and reconnect. And even the weather didn't cooperate. It was freezing all weekend. We went to the movies to stay warm. We didn't have the right clothes. You know, everything about it was bad. We weren't talking about the elephant in the room. We just sort of avoided the subject. And I think because both of us were afraid that if we began talking about how difficult this was and how conflicted we felt, 
about having to deal with this level of anger that the whole thing might fall apart. Right when we were about to leave, I looked at, over at my husband who was lying on the bed in the hotel with his arm flung up over his head. And I was looking out the window at the ocean beyond and some guys playing football on the sand. And for the briefest moment, I imagined that there was a knife in my husband's stomach. And then being a writer, I took that and I immediately scribbled it down in a notebook. And that became the opening scene of, of Just Fall. And it's not me and it's not my husband and it's it's not Laguna, it's the Caribbean, but there's a woman in a window with a man in a bed with a knife in his stomach. And so the, that book is about a woman who discovers the night of her wedding that her husband is a contract killer and she's asked, told that if she wants to save his life, she has to go kill someone for the syndicate that he works for. And in a way, of course, it's not about me at all. My husband's not a killer. I, you know, I was not asked to go kill anyone, but in a way it was completely about me because it was me saying, what lines am I willing to cross for love? Where am I willing to be uncomfortable with what I'm accepting because I love my husband, right? And so, you know, and this is, you know, partly why I write thrillers because I feel like all the emotions that we feel, which are so big, are best expressed on that operatic larger dance. So I, so I was feeling despondent. I was feeling kind of beat up by the industry that had been my industry, only industry my whole life. And I thought my love of writing was eroding and then I was having all these family issues and then my stepson and my son who had been a lot of the beef between the two of them began to watch football together this seemed to be sort of bonding and so I committed I decided I was going to spend every Sunday while they watched football working on a book that was purely for me so I could be in the house but not intrusive you know keep an ear open to hear if there was any shouting and, and so I just started writing this book and I didn't tell anyone I was doing it because I didn't want anyone to say, how's that book coming? And, you know, we have no response, but it took me about 18 months. And then when I finished, I had a draft, you know, I gave it to a couple of friends and admittedly, you know, I've worked in entertainment business for 20 years. So my friends were in the business and through those connections, the book found its way to a really great New York literary agent. And then three weeks later, she said, I'm taking the book out to auction. And I kind of went gulp and she sold it to Valentine and they've bought every book from me since. So I haven't looked back very blessed in that regard. But, you know, I think the object lessons there are commit to yourself. That I think is the major problem. Why people don't finish their work. You have to say, I'm committing to yourself and for me, was this you know block of time every Sunday, partly to make sure that there were no fisticuffs in the house, but nonetheless, it was a commitment that I kept to, and two that you know, it's all about two things: relying on yourself to utilize your voice and create the work, and then relying on your network of friends to try to help move it along to its professional path, which you can do no matter where you are in the world, because friends have friends have friends, and we can all work that network. Work that network, right? <laughs> It's important. <laughs> so what has your experience been as an author who first got published by a big publisher like Valentine with your debut thriller? I mean, you hear about people who go to the self-published route because they're not sure, they're not confident, they're afraid, they can't get an agent. What has your been experience like to be published by a large publisher with that first book? Well, I'll say that, you know, it's sort of funny because everyone assumes like that's the golden ticket and it makes it really easy. And I'm here to tell you that that is not the case. 
Um, one of the biggest surprises I had upon becoming a published author was how much work the author has to do that is not about the writing of the book, right? And that includes everything that you do to support the release of the book, right? So podcasts like this, writing essays. I'm you know, particularly proud of an essay I wrote for Crime Reads recently titled Why Writing About Psychopaths Keeps Me Sane. I uh, recommend that everyone check that out because there's a reason. But I think that, you know, there's all, but it's all work, right? You know, I've written thousands of words of essays to promote Convince Me and every other book I've done. I've created questions for book clubs. I've created recipes and cocktails um, to go with the book club kits. For Convince Me, I created a Spotify playlist of my top 10 songs about liars and lying, which you can also get on my website. You know, so there's all this stuff that you create plus social media cards, right? You know, to keep a, a you know, one of the things I learned also from at Thriller Festa, that marketing conference, was that it takes, you know, five to seven impressions for something to even register, right? I mean, on, on people, but much less converted to a sale, right? A lot of that is just about, you know, repetition of, of seeing something over and over again. That's what actually triggers purchase. So, that's what was astonishing to me is how much work you do. And then when I'm not promoting a release, right, there's all that work in between. I release my dispatch once to two times, one or two times a month, which means, you know, assembling content, writing it, graphic design, you know, publishing it, you know, responding to people that write about the books, attending book clubs, attending conferences, guesting on panels, right? All of that is part of the work of being an author of creating your community. So people who say, well, you know, I'm a writer. I just want to sit in, in a room and write. Like, that's just really not an option. <laughs> that's not the reality of the life of a writer, right? Correct. Yeah. So thrillers are your game. That's your world. So I know you love writing them. Why? Well, I think for a number of reasons. One, I've always loved mysteries and thrillers. You know, I discovered Agatha Christie and I read them all through. And then I went into Dorothy Sayers and P.D. James. And then, you know, I did a deep dive into, you know, like American noir. And, you know, so I've just always loved mystery, suspense, thrillers. It's just something I've always enjoyed as a reader. Again, it's going back to what I said before about feeling that you know, when you're in something personal, that's where you have these huge feelings, right? Like your, your marriage is in trouble. You have huge feelings about that, right? And so I wanted to create, always create a landscape where those huge feelings could play out on a life and death level. The other thing I think is really true is that writing for me is how I process my fears and furies about the world. So there is always some kind of, like, and convince me what I'm looking at is the impact on our culture of pathological lying in a world where, you know, alternative facts and disdain for science are corrupting our culture and creating nothing but divisiveness, right? With Burial Societies, that series, I created a character who's my badass avatar. She, you know, rescues whistleblowers and abused women and other endangered people and runs a private witness protection program that sets them up in safe new lives. So, for me, that was came out of my frustration of feeling like, my God, there's so many people who are hurting, so many people who need help that I can't help, right? I can go sign petitions and donate money and go to marches, but you know, my characters go out is going out there and actually saving people, right? You know, with Just Fall, I was examining, you know, what where do we cross our own boundaries, right? And and what what makes us do that? 
um, that's also, you know, something I've returned to and convinced me where, what kind of lies are we all comfortable with, right? The tactical white lie, you know, like where, where are our own lies? You know, we've all told lies at some point. So how do you gauge what's okay? Right. So I, what I hope with my books is that I provide fast, fun, candy kind of read, you know, total beach reading, <laughs> uh, but that when people get to the end that they actually ask themselves some questions about what they read and you know like if people read convince me and said huh have I ever been have I ever judged information differently because I was attracted to the person who was giving it to me or because I found them charismatic where are my filters how am I checking what I'm being told right because that's a big issue right and that's one of the questions that's in my you know discussion guide for the for the book club. So I end, always aim for pure entertainment. That's always my goal. But with the hope that is icing on that cake, people are actually also asking themselves questions and talking. Well, that's the beauty of being a novelist, right? Because one of the things that you can do is evoke from the fiction world those questions inside us as the reader. How do you feel about this? How, what would you do in this case? Right. And making that part of your book club discussion just makes the book so much more multidimensional, not just, oh, wow, that was a good B-tree. Yeah. Well, I, I think, I mean, that's what I try to do because I feel like, I mean, one of my core beliefs of writing is that the writer's task is pretty simple on a core base level, is that you want to create characters for whom your readers feel empathy. You want to put those characters in situations that cause the reader anxiety and you want to provide a catharsis in the resolution, right? It's what I call math for writers, right? Empathy plus anxiety equals catharsis, that story, right? So if you think about it that way, you know, what you want people to connect on a really personal level, right, to what you're talking about. I think that's one reason that I seem to, oh, I just noticed this about my own work, that there, <laughs> there seems to be a return to the questions of like, you know, romantic partnerships and where we deceive ourselves and each other in that. I don't know, it's uh, probably another whole other interview. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, do, we'll talk about that another time. I, You betcha. I'm putting that on my list. Do you still write your books the same way? Do you have a process or discipline for writing them like you talked about on Sunday afternoons? Yes, I do have a process and a discipline and they're different. So my discipline is I block off the hours that I'm going to write, I recognize that I can get about maybe four to five good hours in on any given day. After that, it begins to be degenerative and sort of a waste of my time. And then, but I, that's, so that's my discipline. And particularly now that I have, you know, a, a pretty demanding job that's changed a little bit because I used to, I used to block off big chunks and now I'll block off an hour before I work and two hours after I work and maybe a lunch break of a half an hour, you know, and so that's changed. But what hasn't changed is that I do a lot of pre-writing. I do a lot of research. I do a lot of character bios. I do a lot of outlining. I do a lot of thinking before I get to work so that when I do have a half an hour or an hour to slide in, I know exactly what I'm drafting, right? Because I'm not going, oh, what am I going to do next, right? So I work out that out so that my time is really efficient. The other thing that is important to my process is that, and this would be again for my ideal writing day, I don't always have time for this, but I really believe that you have both vertical and lateral thinking in writing, the vertical thinking being structure and tropes and stereotypes and act breaks and all the buckets that 
craft, all the things that you can learn. And then the, the lateral being your intuitive, creative connection to the divine unconscious. That is a very different sort of thinking that needs to be done. So when I really want to do the, I can do the vertical thinking, which is the actual drafting, you know, just dropping into the computer and doing it. But with the lateral thinking, when I'm more in the more dreamy ideation stage, I usually meditate, dance, and do some yoga or Pilates before I go to work. The dancing is particularly important. It's become a thing that I've become known for. When I teach writing, I make all my uh, students dance in my office at NYU. We have a four o'clock, five minute dance party every day. I really believe that dancing, you know, connects you to your body, your mind to your body, uplifts the soul. And, you know, even if it's just five minutes, you know, so the way I really love to begin is a little coffee, a little check of where I was, where my work was the day before. Then I'll walk away from the computer, do a short meditation, some stretching, dance it out, and then and I do a lot of my ideation longhand in a notebook, totally different methodology. So like I have a, with every, with every book or script, I have a notebook that's all handwritten, that's ideas and jottings and all that dreamy, I, what if kind of stuff. I also make, usually make a piece of art that is related in the, in the materials to, or in the content to whatever I'm working on. And I work on that piece while I am letting my lateral brain figure out problems of like, like, I don't believe in writer's block. I just believe that if you are, don't know what to write yet, it's because you haven't asked yourself the right questions. So sometimes when I realize I need to go ask myself some questions, I'll go start getting myself messy with paints or pastels. And then I'll have a notebook that's covered in paint. Cause I'm like, all right, I can do that. And all right, I figured that out <laughs> yeah. by letting my brain do something else. So. Yeah. I'm a walker. I walk it out. that's their thing i've heard people go horseback riding or gardening or pet their dog you know (laughs) whatever (laughs) you (laughs) takes all kinds right (laughs) and we'll be right back with more from nina sadowski Are you an author with a published or soon-to-be-published book? Have you considered producing an audiobook version of your title? Hi, I'm David Wolf, founder of Audavita Studios and the producer of this podcast, Your Book is Your Hook. For years, we've helped authors and even publishers create audiobook versions of their titles. It's not hard to do, you just need the guidance of an experienced team. As an author, you should know that audiobooks are the fastest-growing segment of the digital publishing world. And by getting your book up as an audiobook on Amazon, Audible, and iTunes, you unlock a whole new audience that may not have the time to sit and read, but love to listen. Without an audiobook on the market, they may entirely miss your content. At Audavita Studios, we record authors reading their own audiobooks and also provide professional narrators to read them. And we do it all remotely. No expensive studios or travel is required. We provide flexible scheduling and fixed project rates that include getting your audiobook out to the online retailers like Audible, Amazon, iTunes, and many more. If you'd like to learn more about how to get your book turned into a powerful audiobook product, visit audavita.com and schedule a no-obligation call with me. I'll personally talk you through the entire process and share everything you need to know to get it done. At Audavita Studios, we've produced hundreds of audiobooks and have many happy authors that have worked with us. I'd love to talk to you about how we can help you get your audiobook produced and up for sale. Just go to audavita.com and schedule a call with me. That's audavita.com. 
A-U-D-I-V-I-T-A.com. Welcome to the Education Corner. If you've been writing for a while and sometimes get the feeling that you may never make it as a writer, think again and keep working at it. To shed some perspective on this, I'd like to share a few stories of authors you'll probably recognize who had their own humble beginnings before they had a rock star writing career. Let's start with this week's guest on the show, who these days is one of America's beloved thriller writers. Nina Sadowski has been a screenwriter, a rewriter, and a scriptwriter for film and television projects. She is a producer and has even been at the helm of Meg Ryan's production company, Proof Rock Productions, until Meg decided to close it. She is the executive producer of The Wedding Planner and other film and television projects. But it wasn't until four years ago, in 2016, after her many years spent in Hollywood and the entertainment industry, that she decided to try her hand at novel writing. Poof! Nina became a thriller writer, tantalizing audiences with her dark thrillers and entertaining subscribers of her newsletter, The Dispatch. Nina's fourth book, Convince Me, about pathological lying, was released this month and shows the great creativity and unique approach Nina takes to expressing her take on dicey topics like the dark side of deceit. Let's take another look at another writer one whom you may not think could be successful in the writing business, yet she is one of America's most wildly popular and beloved women's fiction authors. But that's not where she began her career. Debbie Maycomber is dyslexic and didn't learn to read until she was in the fifth grade. Her dyslexia did not deter the young mother of four from pursuing a lifelong dream of becoming published. She started writing articles for magazines at her kitchen table on a typewriter after her family had finished breakfast. When she got one of her first checks for one of her articles published in a women's magazine, she was encouraged and so was her husband. Debbie didn't get a book published during her first five years as a writer. Then she celebrated her first sale in 1982 when Silhouette Books acquired her manuscript, Heart Song. The book became the first category romance ever to be reviewed by Publishers Weekly. She was soon featured in Newsweek, and demand for her books quickly exceeded her wildest dreams. Debbie maintains a list of more than almost 200,000 readers with whom she regularly corresponds. Today, with more than 200 million copies of her books in print, Debbie Maycomber is one of the world's most popular authors. A regular resident on the bestseller lists, two of her novels have scored the number one slot on the New York Times, USA Today, and Publishers Weekly lists during the first week on sale. She is the first ever recipient of the Reader's Choice Fan-Voted Quill Award for Romance Fiction for her book, 44 Cranberry Point, the fourth book in her highly popular Cedar Cove series. Debbie has also been honored with a Rita Award for her holiday hardcover, The Christmas Basket. And Romantic Times Book Reviews gave her a Career Achievement Award. 
She's also a multiple winner of the Holt Medallion and the B. Dalton Award. And in 2010, the Romance Writers of America Industry Group presented Debbie with its prestigious Lifetime Achievement Award. But Debbie hasn't stopped over the last decade. Debbie has also written and been published with a cookbook, a children's book, and three nonfiction inspirational books. Her novel, Mrs. Miracle, was broadcast in 2009 as a made-for-TV movie by Hallmark Channel, and she was Hallmark Channel's top-watched movie of the year. Call Me, Mrs. Miracle was then broadcast the following year on the Hallmark Channel as a made-for-TV movie, too. Debbie doesn't stop at books, though. She also has a whole following of knitters who contribute to her Knit One Bless Two campaign and her Knit for Kids program to provide hats and gloves to children who need them. If you're a knitter, you can download a free pattern to knit these from her website, debbiemaycomber.com. What else? Not bad for a woman who's dyslexic and didn't learn to read until she was in the fifth grade, huh? Now we're going to turn our attention to Nicholas Sparks, who you may recognize. Well, Nicholas was born in Omaha, Nebraska. After receiving a full-track scholarship to the University of Notre Dame, he got injured during his freshman year in college after breaking the Notre Dame record in the 4x800 relay at the Drake Relays, a record that still stands. He spent the summer icing his Achilles tendon and moping around the house until his mother said, don't just pout, do something. (laughs) When Nicholas, sulking, asked, like what? His mother replied, I don't know, write a book. He looked at her and said, okay. Eight weeks later, he was the proud author of his first novel, The Passing, a book that was never published. In 1989, he wrote his second novel, The Royal Murders. It's in his attic together with the countless rejection slips, along with his first novel. He decided to concentrate on another career. In addition to being rejected from law school, Nicholas appraised real estate, bought and restored homes, waited tables, sold dental products by phone, and finally started his own business manufacturing orthopedic products. He then proceeded to run up $30,000 in credit card debt. After two and a half long, long years, he broke even. During this time, he wrote yet another book, Wakini, with Billy Mills, a longtime friend and Olympic gold medalist. It was published by Feather Publishing, a small outfit in Sacramento at that time. It did well regionally, sales of about 50,000 copies, and was picked up by Random House in 1994. The success, Spark confesses, was primarily due to the name recognition of Billy Mills, not him. Newer editions have been published by Hay House Books and might still be available. In early 1992, Nicholas sold his business and looked around for something to do. He became a pharmaceutical salesman. In May 1994, he decided to give writing another shot. He decided to give himself three chances, three more novels. If none of those were published, he'd be able to accept that he wasn't meant to be a writer. He wrote The Notebook over a six-month period from June of 1994 until January of 1995, writing in the evenings from 9 until midnight and working one day on the weekends. In July 1995, 
he started soliciting agents. He found one, and the book was presented to publishers in October 1995. At the time, he was earning about $40,000 a year. Warner Books bought the rights for a million dollars. Film rights to the novel were sold later that week to New Line Cinema, and foreign rights were sold eventually into more than 45 languages. The novel was also made a main selection of the Literary Guild. In October 1996, the book launched with 56 events in over 45 cities crammed into three months. It was the longest book tour in Warner Books history, one of the longest ever, period. But it was important for Sparks to do, despite the fact that only one person showed up in Miami and one person showed up in San Francisco for events in those cities. The Notebook steadily grew in popularity through word of mouth. It ended up spending 56 weeks on the New York Times hardcover bestseller list and another 54 weeks on the paperback list. It was only the third novel in the previous 30 years that had lasted over a year on the hardcover list and the only novel to last over a year on both hardcover and paperback lists until J.K. Rowling came along with Harry Potter. To this point, it has sold over tens of millions of copies worldwide. Since The Notebook, he has written and published more than 20 books. 12 of his books have been optioned and produced as films and for television, including The Notebook, Message in a Bottle, Nights in Rodanthe, A Walk to Remember, The Last Song, Dear John, The Lucky One, Safe Haven, The Best of Me, Deliverance Creek, The Longest Ride, and The Choice. Fast forward to this month, September 2020, when his latest book will be released at the end of this month on September 29th, entitled The Return. Talk about a career best-selling author. That's a long way from the couch. Finally, let's take a look at the humble beginnings of Dan Brown, a New Hampshire native who taught English and creative writing at Phillips Exeter Academy until 1998, when he became a full-time writer and his first novel, Digital Fortress, was published. That first book was followed by Angels and Demons in 2001 and Deception Point in 2002. But it wasn't until his fourth novel, that Dan Brown's career as a writer and best-selling author took off. In fact, his first three novels were virtually unknown until he broke out with the runaway hit The Da Vinci Code that went on to sell more than 25 million copies in 44 languages and was made into a feature film starring Tom Hanks. Time Magazine, in its 2005 article, The Novel That Ate the World, stated that during the two years prior to its article, one of the very few books to sell more copies than The Da Vinci Code was the Bible. Wow. As reported in Site.com's article, The Dan Brown Code, which was published in 2006 by Brian Curtis, and SILive.com's article, Dan Brown Returns with the Lost Symbol, which was published in 2009 by James Yates and others, Brown resolved to become a writer when he read Sidney Sheldon's The Doomsday Conspiracy while vacationing in Tahiti. After he read Sheldon's book, which he found swift and merciless, he began to suspect that maybe he could write a thriller of this type one day. 
He had read almost no commercial fiction at all since The Hardy Boys as a child. After his first two novels, his sales were poor, and by 2001, he was in the same rut as so many authors, handling his own publicity and even selling books out of his car, a process that would now require a convoy of trucks. Brown changed agents, changed publishers from Simon & Schuster to Doubleday, a random house imprint, changed his luck, and then he changed the industry. He wrote the outline for The Da Vinci Code in a laundry room, himself planted in a lawn chair, and his manuscript balanced on an ironing board. It was published in March 2003 and was an immediate hit that remained on bestseller lists for more than three years. So you see, my fellow writers, don't give up. A career of writing begins and ends with your decision to keep writing. Imagine if Nina decided she was too old or had had enough of writing in Hollywood and chose not to sit down and try her hand at writing thrillers, or if Debbie had let the dyslexia beat her, or if Nicholas gave up after he got rejection slip after rejection slip for his second novel, or if Dan Brown decided to stop writing after his first two novels weren't selling well. If Dan hadn't sat down in that laundry room and written The Da Vinci Code, well, the history of the book publishing industry just wouldn't be the same, now would it? So keep writing, keep the faith. It will happen to you. All you have to do is keep doing it. After all, you can't use your book as your hook until you have a book. For more information on this Education Corner topic and others, please refer to www.yourbookisyourhook.com forward slash blog for more articles and resources to help you with your books and projects. We'll be right back. Need a respite from the chaos of today's environment, the catastrophe of yesterday's and today's news, and the calamity caused by the upheaval of the routines you used to have where you can be productive? Well, why work or write alone? The Make It Happen Room is now open and you can work or write from wherever and be part of a community that's rocking it. In addition to your book is your hook, I'm the creator, curator, and concierge of the Make It Happen Room, where like-minded, highly productive people gather to get their work and writing done during a three-hour, thoughtfully curated experience. Chock full of action hours, you'll have accountability, the structure that you're looking for, combined with self-care, positivity, a like-minded community that is really supportive, recipes for resilience, resources for you to use to make sure you're getting your stuff done with a touch of joy and most importantly that you get results from the three hours that you spend join me at jenniferswilkov.com forward slash the dash make dash it dash happen dash room when you go to that site you'll be able to see my favorite definition as to why you want to be in the Make It Happen Room, because tomorrow is a noun. It's a mystical land where 99% of all human productivity, motivation, and achievement is stored. I invite you to join me in the Make It Happen Room so that your tomorrow is today. Joining me now is Kendra Sit Robbins from an amazing organization called Project Night Night. And Your Book is Your Hook is a proud sponsor and supporter 
of Project Night Night and all the efforts that Kendra makes. So let's find out what she's doing and what you're up to. So Kendra, welcome. Thank you. I'm so happy to be talking with you. You know, I know that you're so busy. Let's talk about what you actually do. So tell us a little bit about the population that you focus on. And I know that it has to do with homeless children. What exactly is the population that you support with all of your efforts? You are exactly right. Project Night Night is dedicated to helping homeless children feel safer and more secure. We work with kids 0 to 12, and we do it because 1 in 30 American children is going to face homelessness this year. Now, I know that you started this nonprofit in your garage, so (laughs) tell me a little bit about where you started and why you chose to do this. You have the heart of gold that everybody wants to be a part of. Tell me what you did. Well, you're super sweet, but really um, all I did was think about a small problem and how I could tackle it as one person and hope that maybe others felt the same way and would join me. But I used to be a corporate attorney. And when I had my son, I knew that he slept well, no matter where we were, as long as he had his blanket, his book and his stuffed animal. So I borrowed some of his items initially and sent them to a domestic violence shelter. And they really responded well. And I had to put out the call to others to help me with these items. And that we really just grew organically, grassroots, a few night-night packages at a time. And now we distribute about 35,000 every single year to 850 shelters across the country. That's amazing. And what's in the package itself? Like when it's delivered hand-to-hand, eye-to-eye with the children and the shelters, what do they get? Each night-night package contains a new security blanket, an age-appropriate children's book, and a stuffed animal. And we put them inside of a canvas tote bag. Everything in there is new and special and high quality so that the children opening them feel important and noticed and valued. And in the pre-pandemic environment, I know that you were working with over 10,000 volunteers a year. And now, because of the current environment, volunteering isn't really something that's that easy with a nonprofit, but our listeners can still help. Can you let us know how can our listeners continue to support your amazing efforts for these children who just adore what it is that you deliver? Absolutely. You are exactly right. Volunteering has changed immensely, but we still are going to count on volunteers to support us. And this time it's going to be a small request to help us financially. With every $25 donation, we can place a complete night-night package into the arms of a homeless child. And we can accept the donations on our website. So it's very easy and it means a great deal to us. And I know as a fact that you are the leading provider of nighttime comforts for homeless children. And I really want to acknowledge you, Kendra, and thank you so much for creating such an amazing organization here at Your Book is Your Hook. We are proud to be a supporter of your organization and encourage everybody listening to take out your wallet, donate the $25 so that Kendra can continue to do what it is that she's doing so well and make the efforts that we all wish we could for the homeless children in our community. Kendra, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Jennifer. I appreciate it. (laughs) 
So let me welcome Nina back to the show. Let's talk a little bit about Team Nina, because you work with a team of professionals on Team Nina, as I love to call it. And I always say that writing is a team sport. This is not something that you work on or succeed with alone. So who is on your team, Nina? And why is it important for you, Nina, to have a team? Well, sometimes I'm kind of astonished at how big my team has grown. I will say that. So, and it's kind of because I have so many different parts of my life, right? So in publishing, I have my editor and then I have also the publicist and marketing people that are assigned to me. So within Random House, there's a team that is assigned to my account. I have book agents um, with Folio in uh, New York. I have separate uh, film and TV agents in Los Angeles for my film content work. I have a manager who is also sometimes my producer, who is a real partner in the architect of my growing business. I have my team at NYULA, and a particular shout out to Gracie Corby, who is my assistant and who, you know, kind of wears two hats, helps with NYULA and also helps me with, uh, you know, book stuff. So I'm very indebted to her. She's amazing. So I have, you know, a lot of people and then, you know, a few handful of people that I will ask to read early drafts. Uh, That's a very small number because I think asking people to read a whole book is a big ask. I have much more friends in the film and TV world who I'd ask to read a pilot. It's at 60 pages. It's a much different proposition. And it's all dialogue, right? So it's a much different proposition. But I don't have that many people that I ask to read books. But then also I do have, you know, who I call my gurus, you know, the network of friends that I go to for advice, strategy, introductions, you know, when I'm perplexed with how to handle something. So there's that very strong network of people that I look to for advice. And of course, my, you know, family, you know, um, you know, I you know, have a husband who, you know, allows my workaholic craziness. I have kids who are, you know, mostly, as I say, adultish, not really fully grown yet, but, you know, getting there and uh, who also just make everything that I do worth doing. They're my best creations of all the things I've created. My kids are the best. So, you know, it does take a village, you know, I think that it's important to know what to ask who for, right? That came out wrong. But, you know, you need to know what, what is the right thing to ask from people, right? And, and what, what is the thing that you need and what can they provide, right? And not, it can't be, you know, all, one person not, cannot be all things to, to you. They cannot. And so you really need to say, what do I need in my life right now? I mean, for the first time this year, I hired a marketing professional, who did a great job, a woman named Julie at a company called 82 Stories. Um, I'd highly recommend. They helped me revamp on my website. They created, you know, better systems for the delivery of my social media. We, we created a color palette that was consistent. Um, that actually factored in when we were choosing the cover for Convince Me was sort of keeping consistent to the brand. So that was extremely helpful because we just sort of systemized and professionalized all my social media. Um, so that was very worthwhile. So I think it, but, you know, but my community has grown. My fan base has grown, you know, convinced me, you know, has a, I know, I don't know, you know, they never want to tell you what your, uh, you know, numbers are, but 
what the initial run was, but I know that the book was uh, released in Target, which is the first time a book of mine has been in one of the, you know, the a big box stores. So that was a very significant thing. So, you know, it was sort of time. It was time to say, okay, I'm going to take this to a ne- ne- next level. My previous website had been something that I had created with my niece, right? Like, you know, it's uh and so we upped the game and, you know, but as I said before, all that work, creating the newsletter, creating the website, you know, creating social media, that is such a big part of being a writer. And you, so that I, so to some point that I know some writers say, well, I can't do it because I don't have time to write. I need just the time to write. And so that would be a really good place where you might say, you know what, maybe let me hire a college student for 20 bucks an hour to have them do it. Right. Just make your life easier. So, yeah, so there's a lot of people on my team, probably too many, <laughs> but I'm grateful for them all. Well, that's the piece of the puzzle that makes the most sense because let's turn our attention to your latest book, Convince Me, because now you've created this whole experience as a team, everyone from the website all the way through all the different pieces and roles on your team, including yourself, right? Because you're on your team, right? And what is your experience with Convince Me? And what do you want the readers to know about this story? Can I curse on air? You betcha. <laughs> <laughs> it's it, the first line of the book, although it's actually the last page in the, in the Kindle version, but the first line of the book is, this book is for everyone who's sick and tired of the fucking liars and their fucking lies. And what I would like, and that's actually the Last, as I say, the last page in the Kindle, which has been sort of funny because a lot of people have been reviewing the book on Goodreads or Amazon and saying, and then I got to the last page of the book and I realized she had written this book just for me, you know, which was sort of funny. But um, so the book, but the book was fueled by rage. I was so angry when I wrote this book that, and it completely defied my process because I wrote it in a fury the entire plot, including the final twist, came into my head like an arrow into my forehead. And I felt like I was pulling it out, inch by inch, to the, out of the computer. I was waking up in the middle of the night to write. I was just, I was so angry. And there was one particular incident that tipped me over the edge. But the, the I will admit, but the, the anger was general. And it was this this world where with alternative facts and all that bull and the sense that science is so disrespected. And that people who lie not only are not called out, but are rewarded. And there was a particular incident that I read about, about white male privilege and a guy who was getting rewarded. And I just snapped and I thought I want to kill him. So I created a character inspired by all the liars and then I killed him. So this is not a spoiler alert. (laughs) The book opens at his funeral because one, it was incredibly cathartic. I created this pathological liar. I loved building him and researching him. And then I, you know, created him, but then I murdered him right in the beginning of the book. (sighs) What a relief. But there was also a storytelling reason for that is In the course of the book, which is told from three perspectives, his um, widow, his mother, and his best friend, who's also his business partner, discover that this man that they adored, all of them, was a pathological liar, not the man they thought they knew at all, and that he has left them all in trouble. And the course of the book is they're coming to terms with this realization and figuring out how they're going to save themselves, right? That's the story. And I 
didn't want this character of Justin Childs, my liar, this, this uh, liar that I created. I didn't want him to have the opportunity to deflect or defend with his devious narcissistic tricks the way that he would have <laughs> if he had been allowed to talk to any of these people after things began to unravel, right? And so it was a creative decision, but it was also an intensely satisfying personal <laughs> decision. Um, and then, as I said, I just wrote it in a frenzy, four and a half months, the fastest I'd written anything. And it was simultaneously with launching NYU LA, which was a brand new program that I was sort of launching last, I started there May 1st of 2019, just right around when I started writing the book, which I started in April, I think end of March. And so I just was like a woman possessed. I was writing that book and I was launching that program. <laughs> and then this is a beautiful story. For work, I went to a site director's retreat in Florence, Italy last October, which was glorious. My son was studying in Prague for the semester. So he came up to meet me for the weekend. I hadn't seen him in months. I was thrilled. And it was while I was in Italy on my birthday, October 11th, that I got an offer from Valentine for Convince Me. And I, my agent said, do you want me to go back? It was a good offer. She said, do you want me to go back and negotiate? And I said, you know what? No, because it's not going to get better than this. <laughs> I'm in Italy. It's my birthday. I'm with my son. You know, I said, just say yes. Let's just say this is a moment meant to happen. And, you know, who knows? I'll never, I may never have another birthday out of my house again. Again, so <laughs> particularly delightful and poignant memory now. What a and then they one. rushed it into publication. Yeah, it was a great one. And it was very different also because they really rushed it. it. The whole process was, you know, really accelerated to get it out the summer. And its uh, release date was never pushed. I know a lot of books were, but mine wasn't. We kept hard to our release date. So I want to congratulate you with convince me because it's such a great turn of events that you were writing this last year and then the pandemic came on and still it's a fiction book, but wow, what a great opportunity for people to explore our culture through your book. So I invite all of you to take a look at convince me on lots of different levels. And Nina, I want to ask you this parting question. You know, we have a lot of young novelists that are out there now that are more than ever inspired to write. So what advice would you give her or him that you know now that you wish you had known when you had written and published your first book and got published with Ballantyne? Huh, that's a good question. I mean, I think I wish I had known how much I didn't know. And because I was, I'm, you know, a pretty sophisticated person in business and in, in the entertainment world. I didn't know a lot about pr publishing. I was lucky because I had a best friend from high school who worked in publishing her whole career. And so I would have conversations with someone at the publisher and not know what they were talking about. And then I'd call my friend Janet and say, okay, publishing whisperer, what does this mean? You know, for example, with Just Fall, um, my editor called me up all excited and said, um, we're holding the release date to accommodate the Barnes and Noble table dates. And I was like, great, no idea. So I called my friend and she said, oh, well, you know, it's once a month. They change the front tables and they're saying that they want to include you in the front. So it's worth, you know, holding to that date. And I was like, oh, great. Right. But I really didn't. And there were so many instances like that terminology that I didn't know. 
I didn't know, as I said earlier in the interview, how much energy went into creating your, your author persona, marketing that, you know, all the, the ancillary work that you do to the book in order to help make it stand out, you know, in the community. But, you know, here's the great thing. I love the writing community and I love the reading community and authors support each other in a way that is beautiful and so in Hollywood that I don't even know what to make of it, right? Offering blurbs in advance and promoting congratulations to each other on pub dates and, you know, like what I do with my Hollywood decoded thing where I help to try to promote other authors. That is genuinely the community. It's a really warm community. Um, the same thing you find, I think, at conferences. People really are genuine and about wanting to help because people who love writing and reading and love books, you know, we're all special. You know, we, I, you know, we are. We're just special, and we recognize that. And, and people who love books don't buy my book and therefore not your book. They buy all the books, right? So there's there's reason for generosity, right? There's the ability to be generous. So I think that um, you know, I, I say this all the time. I feel like this midlife step that I've taken into publishing books has been one of the greatest things that's ever happened to me. It's offered enormous opportunity, um, including in the in film and TV world where I've sold, you know, I sold Just Fall and I sold the Burial Society series to television. So, you know, it, in creating books, I also created IP for myself that reinvented my film and TV career, right? So that's a blessing. So I think that, you know, the most important thing is to just keep going. Like that's, you know, just don't bet on yourself. Keep going and bet on yourself. That's always my best advice. You're a fabulous beacon for people, Nina, because everything has come full circle for you. You've gone from Hollywood and writing and found yourself in the author writing role and now your own IP is circulating you back all the way to where you were before. So it's really this wonderful symbiotic experience it, from the cheap seats here that it looks like you're having. <laughs> you know, one thing I say about working in the film business is that it you know, can be brutal. You know, you're told no nine times before breakfast, like figuring out how to keep the wherewithal to keep going is one of the most challenging things. I think about any creative, you know, career path, right? You're going to encounter self-doubt, external challenges, right? All of that is part and parcel of choosing that life, right? That's just what it is. So, you know, the, the only way that you can really help yourself is get out of your own way, right? Because we all get in our own ways, different ways. Figure out how you're getting in your own way and try to get out of it. And then just commit the time to yourself. If you love to create, create. I don't, I'm not one of those people who says, if you're a writer, you have to write every day. You know, that's hogwash. Some days you need to lie on the sofa, right? <laughs> and stare at the ceiling, right? That's fine too, right? Be compassionate with yourself. But if you make commitments to yourself, live up to them. If you say you're going to write 15 hours, it's about 15 hours, which I think almost anyone can find in a week, right? Break it broken up. That's a, a good number to start with. Commit to those 15 hours and say to your husband or your wife or your kids or your, you know, friends, I'm sorry, this is for me and I'm not available now. Protect that. And that's really all yours for the taking as a writer. It's all yours for setting those boundaries and making sure that you are a writer. <laughs> Because it's only you. It has well, to be good. If you think about it, we're actually blessed as writers to be able to do that. Because 
right? An actor can't act unless someone gives them a part. A director can't direct writers. If you have a computer or a notebook or a piece of charcoal and a parchment, you can keep writing, right? So keep, it's like, you know, any other muscle too. The more you flex it, the better you'll get, so... Absolutely. Nina, I really want to thank you for joining me and my listeners today. I've just so enjoyed this and I I love you. I enjoy you. It's really just a a wonderful example for so many people for you to share your experiences and your passions with them and me. And I want to ask you one more time if you would share with our listeners, A, how they can get a copy of your latest book, Convince Me, and your other books too, and how they can contact you directly through your websites. My website is ninasadowski.com, N-I-N-A-S-A-D-O-W-S-K-Y.com. And through there, you can also follow my, you'll see links to my Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. I rant a lot on Twitter, but on Instagram, I share art. My book is available either through Penguin Random House, through Amazon, through your local independent bookstore, which I always try to promote, and also at Target, which was kind of a happy thing. It's available in many forms. There's an audio version as well. And I hope that if you do read it and love it, that you'll go on to Amazon and Goodreads and give me high marks and good stars. Um, It really matters for an author. It's really important that you do that. But if you hate it, just pretend you never read it and just don't acknowledge me at all. So that's, I think, a fair deal, right? Absolutely. So I'm going to remind people that you can go to Nina's websites. Uh, Nina, do you want to repeat those again so that our listeners have the best ways to contact you? And then we'll take a short break and we'll come back and talk about your publishing career. Okay, sure. It's Nina Sadowski, S-A-D-O-W-S-K-Y. Not I, people always get that wrong, but S-E-D-O-W-S-K-Y.com. And that's my website. And on my website, you can email me, you can sign up for the dispatch. And it also has all my social handles. I particularly recommend following me on Instagram because I also share my really wacky paintings and drawings. I've been working on a group of COVID self-portraits as of late. It's a totally different look into the whacked out mind of Nina Sadowski. Awesome. And on that, we'll be right back. Thanks for listening to the Your Book is Your Hook podcast. Become a fan on Facebook. Follow Jennifer and the podcast on Twitter and Instagram. Subscribe to the Your Book is Your Hook YouTube channel and leave a comment on Jennifer's weekly videos. Connect with her on LinkedIn and join her group called Your Book is Your Hook so you can find out who's going to be on the podcast each week and other tips and techniques to use for your books and projects. You can quickly find all of her contact information on the website at www.yourbookisyourhook.com and look for the About Us link at the top. There you'll find the Contact Us page so you can easily click on and find all Jennifer's social media contacts as well as a great way to send her an email. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.